Attitudes. What do you think of a man who shows up drunk at his own mother's funeral? By Father Joseph C. Martin. Father Martin. Ladies and gentlemen, how do you do? A couple of years ago in Rockville, Maryland, I was asked to give a chalk talk. I've given it some 3,000 times in the last 16 years. And I felt that I had just about memorized it, so I agreed to go over. And when it was done, the group there were parole and probation people. When the talk was done, there were some questions. And one of them was from a young fellow in his 20s, a parole and probation officer, who said, Thank you. I've learned something, and hopefully we'll be able to use it. But he said, Information is one thing. Now what do we do? Now what do we do? So I said, well, if you'll ask me back, I will try to tell you how to use it from what I've picked up along the line. So they did ask me back, and what I did in that second talk was what has come to be known as the son of chalk talk. <laughs> I just presented some guidelines for helping the alcoholic, and that's what I'd like to share with all of you today. Ladies and gentlemen, just as all credit must be given where due. And just as most of you know, I tell you that I learned most of what I know in that chalk talk from Dr. Green from Detroit. These guidelines have come from a woman that I was privileged to work with for three years in Baltimore. Her name is Mrs. Gertrude Nielsen. Gertrude was instrumental in bringing into being the first, first alcoholism law in the United States, July 68, State of Maryland. And this law relegated alcoholism from the realm of the judicial to the realm of the public health. Mainly, you cannot arrest an alcoholic for publicly displaying the symptoms of an illness. That was a breakthrough. It has since been followed nationally and by many individual states. I would like to give you a bit of background on her so that you will understand where these guidelines have come from. Gertrude's a social worker spent 20 years on the eastern shore of Maryland, and was then brought into the office of Dr. Isidore Turk, a Secretary of Health for the state of Maryland. And this man, a Jewish psychiatrist, had dedicated his entire professional career to alcoholics, and he got Gertrude into the field of alcoholism under him. After a few years of working with him, I don't know whether this was for a state report or what, he quite simply asked her if she would write down what she had learned. Now, number one, Gertrude Nielsen is a truly humble person, one of the few I've ever met in my life. She was not out to impress anyone, so she didn't write a book. Have you ever noticed when people want to say something, they write a book with 285 pages? <laughs> my God, if it's worth saying, you can say it, you know, in a page and a half. That's just what she did. She wrote it all on one side of one sheet of paper. They were ten declarative sentences. And she called them her ten commandments for helping alcoholics. And the only thing that I have done, I was privileged to help present them with her for three years when I worked with the state of Maryland. So I have them pretty well memorized. But what I have done, quite simply, is condensed them into eight. I simply call them guidelines. They are based on her experience and the experience of many thousands of other people in this field. I would simply like to share them with you. 
with that as a background. They are not mine. I'm simply funneling them to you. Secondly, I'm positive that most of you are already well aware of them. I'm just saying what you already know. But hopefully, since repetition is indeed the mother of learning, they may get nailed home just a little bit deeper. Now, I'd like to make a few preface remarks about these guidelines. Number one, they are not guaranteed to do anything. And I think you had best bear that in mind. I have given this talk publicly many, many times. And always afterwards, there's a man or a woman in the audience who comes up and almost angry, says, I've tried this. He's still drinking. And the only thing he can say is, you tried. That's all. They are not guaranteed to do anything. They're not a magic wand that if you do them, this is going to result. But I'll say this without any hesitation. Of those things that might work, these might work best. Of those things that might work, and please remember what might work, might work. These might work best because they're based on experience. It's just as in the case of AA and its 12 steps. Two men desperately trying to remain alive reached out for anything and everything. They kept what worked and threw out what didn't. All of this is a case of trial and error. These things have worked best. They are not guaranteed, therefore, to do anything. Please bear that in mind. Now, secondly, this is from a completely personal and human point of view. I heard fairly recently, and I've used it since, it is too bad that I hear myself only with my own ears. I know what I'm going to say, and I know what the words I'm going to use mean to me, and I know what the ideas mean to me. I'm not too sure you're going to hear them in the same way at all. I'm just not too sure of that. Uh, it's too bad I see myself only with my own eyes. Please remember that every one of us here sees and hears and grasps and understands things according to himself. According to himself. And it is perfectly true that two people can look at exactly the same thing and see opposites. Try this on for size one time. I remember I was in the home of a friend of mine up in Seattle not too long ago. And we were talking about this very thing. Point of view. And this is why, even though both you and I say things like, well, there are two sides to every question, most of us hear only one. I was in this man's home, we were talking about this, and I picked up a Time magazine. I just held it up between us. I said, Bill, describe to me exactly what you're looking at. And I've, I have a good memory, but it's short, so I don't remember what he was looking at. But anyways, let's just start with this. He said, I see a picture of the President of the United States, I see the word time, and I see a date. I said, now I'll tell you what I'm looking at. It's a picture of Napoleon mounted on a charger, and I'm reading a little ad for Courvoisier Cognac. We were both looking at the same magazine. The point is obvious, isn't it? He was looking at it from his point of view, the front. I was looking at it from mine, the back. Neither one of us saw anything in the middle. All right? A situation can be looked at and talked about and interpreted in two completely different ways. 
They tell a magnificent story of an old, old millionaire who announced to his lawyer and his family that he intended to marry a 19-year-old child. Well, of course, they hit the roof. They had been through this with him so many times. They argued and argued and got nowhere. That old man was adamant. He was determined he was going to marry this girl. So after about an hour, the lawyer just stood up, and he, he, was, he was really angry. He said, look, old buddy, you do exactly as you want to do. But just remember this. Some of these May-December weddings have proven to be fatal. And that old man's eyes nearly come out of his head. <laughs> he stopped for the longest while, and you could see the wheels churning up there. Finally, he came to his decision. He said, well... If she dies, she dies. <laughs> you look at it your way, he look at it his. The first guideline for helping alcoholics, acquire proper attitudes towards the alcoholic. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to spend most of my time today on the first of the eight guidelines. Without it, the others are useless. They're useless. And before we get into attitudes toward alcoholics, I'd like to share with you a few things I've picked up over the years about attitudes in general. Number one, we do not have attitudes. They have us. And if you want to prove it, try to get rid of one. You know what a habit is? It is something that has become a part of you through repetition. Most of us are right-handed or left-handed. If you want to prove that habits have you, try to break a physical habit. I get into a jacket right arm first. Now, it isn't that I can't get into one with the left arm first. 15, 20 minutes, I can get there. Just for fun, just for fun, take one of your habits, whether you eat right-handed or left-handed, and do it the opposite for three days. Again, the second day, you drive yourself crazy. You know what an attitude is? It's a mental or emotional habit. It's a habit of thinking. It's a habit of judging. It's a habit of feeling. You don't get rid of them. They govern us. Ladies and gentlemen, man has been defined as a rational being, an intelligent animal. And I'm positive that most of us are indeed intelligent. That's simply the distinguishing mark of the human animal. I imagine most of us do our jobs intelligently. I imagine most of you take care of your families and shop and budget and plan for the future and the education of your kids intelligently. But did you know that in every other aspect of life, your feelings, your likes, your dislikes, your opinions, and your attitudes govern you? Face it, my likes and dislikes are what dictate what I choose from a menu. Dictates the kind of clothing I buy. Not me, particularly, but... <laughs> It dictates what you do with your leisure time. Some people sail, some golf, some read, and so on. Well, it's all likes and dislikes. And when it comes to people, oh boy, oh boy. Face it, ladies and gentlemen, if I like you, I'm going to bend over backwards to rationalize your shortcomings. And if I don't like you, I'm almost eager to believe the worst. Now, I don't want to be that way, but I am. And I don't care who you are, you're that way too. You're that way too. 
My friends are a result of choice. I choose people I like and I associate with them. So we're that way. I'm not saying anything's wrong with that. I'm just pointing out a simple fact. We do not have attitudes. They have us. How strong are they? Well, they're that strong, and they'll probably die about 20 minutes after we do. <laughs> they're there. They're there. Now, please, at the beginning of this day, I am not a fool. Don't take me for one. I do not delude myself into thinking or even remotely believing that I can change attitudes of yours that you have spent an entire lifetime building up. All right? But I hope to God to change your minds about a few things. So that even though your gut level feelings may remain the same, armed with truth, and truth does set us free from the shackles of error, armed with truth up here, I may react a little bit differently to my feelings than I have before. Okay? No, no. He who is convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. If I've had a pet opinion that I've held for 39 years and you dare to explode it with truth, it'll die a slow death. If it dies at all, I'm not going to change your attitudes. He who is convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Have you ever been in an argument? Face it, we thrive on arguments. In an argument, nobody's interested in truth. That's why we get loud. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I know what's true. It's my opinion. What I'm trying to do is convince you of it. That's what we all do in an argument. I want to believe that what I believe is so. Therefore, it is. Man wants to see a psychiatrist once. This is the most perfect illustration I've ever seen or heard. Psychiatrist said, what seems to be trouble? He said, doctor, I think I'm dead. Well, doctor had never had one of them before. He spent about an hour with that man trying to convince him otherwise, and he couldn't. He couldn't. He was intrigued by this patient. He said, look, would you, would you consider coming back to see me again? The fellow said, no problem, doctor, when you want to see me. Well, he said, uh, don't come back for another 30 days because I want you to do something in the meantime. Three times a day, Look into a mirror and say out loud to yourself, Dead men do not bleed. He did. He came back, he said, Doc, here I am. Did exactly as you told me to do. Didn't miss a one, 90 times. Three times a day for 30 days, dead men do not bleed. Doctor said, fine, come here. He took that man's left hand, he isolated his index finger, grabbed a pin and jabbed it. He drew a drop of blood, shoved it on the guy's face. Man's eyes nearly come out of his head. He said, Good heavens, doctor. Dead men do bleed. <laughs> that's what we deal with when we deal with attitudes. You can change somebody's mind, but it is awfully difficult to change his feelings. Now, in time, feelings may change. Now, I've gone into this at great lengths, and the purpose is obvious. When it comes to alcohol and every facet of it, our attitudes are nailed home. They're pretty deep. They're almost unshakable. And no matter what we say, they govern us and they govern our actions.
They are far more deep and far more emotional than you'll ever dream. And my friends, this goes for the attitudes of recovered alcoholics as well as others. What I'd like to do is to spend some time going into your attitudes and then we'll look at the source of our attitudes just to show you how deep and why they are as deep as they are. Let's take the first. What's your attitude toward drunkenness? Drunkenness. By the way, did you know that there were two kinds? There's the kind that results from alcohol abuse. By the way, we're speaking of knowledgeable people in alcoholism. Many people toss around the words alcohol abuse and alcoholism as though they were interchangeable. And they're not. Wherever you hear the word abuse, you imply freedom of choice. The abuser chooses to drink the way he drinks. He has three choices. He can choose not to drink at all. He can choose to drink a certain amount and quit, or he can choose to get drunk. And the drunkenness that results from alcohol abuse is just that. He chooses to get drunk. By the way, he's the fellow we should judge and don't. We dismiss him. Then there's the drunkenness that results from alcohol addiction or alcoholism. The alcoholic drinks the way he drinks because he can't not drink that way, and he's the one we judge. Let's go back to attitudes. Ladies and gentlemen, you know all this stuff that we're taught about judging the sin, not the sinner, the action, not the actor, the deed, not the doer? That's garbage. We judge people. We judge people. You do, and so do I. I don't want to be that way either, but I am. We used names when Watergate was discussed, right? We didn't judge the actions, we judged the people. That's the way we're built. That's the way we are. Now when it comes to drunkenness, that's an intellectual concept. There's no such thing as drunkenness. There are people who are drunk. They're the ones we judge. What do you think of drunkenness? Is it funny? Right in the beginning, I'm going to discuss humor right now. Don't get me wrong, I'm not a prude. Some of the funniest stories on earth are about drunks. Drunk went up to a parking meter, put his penny in, turned the switch, and it went up to 60. He said, good God, I've lost 120 pounds. <laughs> My own all-time favorite is about the dear little old lady walked into a bar with her pet goose under her arm, and some lush said, what are you doing in here with that pig? She said, it's a goose, young man. He said, I was talking to the goose. That's, uh, that's what he said. <laughs> he said that. And then that one's about 89 years old, two drunks walking along the railroad track, and after about three and a half hours, one said, as the longest stairway I've ever been all my life. And the other one said, hey, these stairs and damn low railings are killing <laughs> You could go on and on this way for hours. There are a whole lot of drunk stories. My point is this. What did you laugh at? What do you laugh at in any story that you laugh at? Whether the subject matter be religion, sex, race, or alcohol, is it not the funny twist at the end? Good heavens. 
No one was laughing at the phenomenon of drunkenness. Now, please, can you see a difference between that kind of laughter and this? Dean Martin says, swizzle stick, and a whole audience of American morons falls down laughing. The other afternoon on the Merv Griffin show, a little nine-year-old, or a, he was a serviceman, he was about 19. He was an alcoholic, and all the symptoms were there at nine. And he said he used to show up in class drunk. And Merv asked the boy, he said, do you mean to tell me that none of your teachers could spot a nine-year-old drunk? And the audience laughed. And there was a young psychiatrist, former Navy doctor, on that panel, and he busted right in. He said, do you see what we're talking about attitudes, Merv? He said, the audience laughed at that. Here's a child of nine years with a terminal, you know, a killer disease. He said, it could have killed him. They thought it was funny. This is starkly indicative of attitudes toward alcohol in the United States. Did you ever notice, by the way, that some of our laughter is a result of nervousness and ignorance? When you don't know what else to do, you giggle. I'm not against humor. I can appreciate a story with the best. What I'm asking you is, what are your attitudes toward drunkenness? You see a drunk. Is he funny? Is she funny? Hardly. The next time you see a drunk and are tempted to giggle, glance at the wife and see how hilarious it is to her. Or deeper still, the children. You look at a kid and see how funny he thinks his drunken mother is. I'll tell you this, my friends. The attitude is the father of the action. That's why we're talking about attitudes. I act according to attitudes. The attitude is the father of the action. All right? Where you condone drunkenness by laughter, you have a very high rate of alcoholism. Where you condone the use or the abuse, where you condone the abuse of any addictive substance, you have a very high rate of addiction to it. Laughter means condoning. Let's switch, please, to another aspect. Do you think drunkenness is immoral? Most of us, I think, with a Christian background and most with a background in other religions have read that drunkenness is indeed to be condemned. But again, let's go back to the drunkenness as a result of alcohol abuse or drunkenness as a result of alcoholism. When you see a drunk, does it ever dawn on you to ask which he might be before the judgment is passed? Are all drunks evil? simply because they're drunk, whether it's a result of the will or not. If, indeed, you think that drunkenness that is the result of alcohol abuse can be considered immoral, I do, I consider it that. How immoral is it? Let's look at the depth of emotion wrapped up in our attitudes toward every aspect of alcohol. Most people who believe that drunkenness is evil believe it is the most horrible evil conceived or conceivable. Much more evil than robbing a bank. And yet a person who would click her tongue at a restaurant, at a drunk over in the corner who was raising cane, is the same one who has absolutely no qualms of conscience at all when it comes to lying or detracting from somebody else. Slander means to lie about somebody. To detract means to tell the truth about him. My dad used to always say, I don't give a damn what you say about me, just don't tell the truth. 
How many of us in this room, and that includes me, how many of us have told the devastating truth about somebody that has practically ruined them and we got away with it with this magnificent sense of righteousness by saying, well, it is true. And yet we look on drunks as being the most horrible, evil people on earth. Is drunkenness worse than adultery? If indeed you believe that drunkenness is a moral evil, how evil? Does it bespeak of degrees? Okay, let's switch from drunkenness to simple drinking. Okay? Drinking alcohol. Uh, I was privileged to meet the nephew of one of the co-founders of AA. And he said to me, my uncle got sober when I was four, so I never saw him take a drink. He said, all I knew him was as an evangelist who preached against the evils of alcohol. He wouldn't allow it in his home. This is one of the co-founders of AA. What are your attitudes toward the drinking of alcohol? I'm not referring to the abuse of it. I'm not referring to drunkenness. I am talking to the ingestion of an alcoholic beverage. Is it moral or immoral? 